Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We have our usual news roundup to kick things off today. We will be talking about Kindle's new Oasis e-reader. We'll talk about the KGI Securities Apple Watch forecast and we will also be sharing some of our thoughts very briefly about the iPad Pro. Both of us have been using that for the last little while. Uh, and so have some sort of first-hand experience with that at this point. Uh, our question of the week, which will be our major topic, will be a discussion of corporate venture capital. What is it and is it worth doing? And so Aaron's going to talk through some research that he's been studying this week around that topic. And then our third topic will be uh, the Facebook F8 developer conference announcements and and what those portend for Facebook and, and uh, some discussion around all of that. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. So to kick things off, our news roundup, uh, Kindle Oasis was announced by Amazon this week uh, after being leaked a couple of days ago. Uh, this is a new e-reader. It's the most expensive one in the current lineup. It has a really odd shape. Um, it's designed for better one-handed use and, and easy scrolling through a book. Um, has better battery life, has a case that actually augments the battery as well. It's not waterproof, as some people were hoping and expecting it might be. Um, but other improvements throughout as well. But again, this is a, a really high-end device. So Aaron, what was your take on all of this? You know, I there was a lot of comment commentary on the internet about how it was weird looking, and I agree. Um, but I think this is a new form factor that is likely to stick. I have a Kindle Paperwhite, and I think my two biggest frustrations with it are that it uh, is harder to hold because the bezels are thin. And I hate having to tap the screen to change pages. And I realize that the screen tapping thing, you know, that the Voyage has buttons, dedicated buttons. But but I think having a fat bezel to increase battery life and to create a more comfortable grip, I think is a great idea. So I, I think I think something like, I think it's going to quickly become a new normal. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of these things where e-readers as a category has really declined and the penetration of e-readers in the population has actually gone down over the last several years um, you know with tablets and phones becoming more and more capable for this kind of thing uh, the dedicated e-reader is it's not a dying breed necessarily there clearly are still people who use them but it's it's definitely dwindling and so it's interesting even as amazon takes the the kindle fire tablet line down as low as possible in terms of price points down to 50 bucks at this point uh, that's actually cheaper than the lowest end Kindle, and, and the Kindle line's actually going up in price at the same time with this this new device. And so, it really feels like they are kind of optimizing for the power user to some extent, sort of making the top of the line the best possible device rather than necessarily trying to bring the price down. That's interesting because a few years back, if you followed the price curve, it very much looked like it was going to go to zero at some point. And they basically subsidize the the device much the same way that you know Gillette subsidizes the razor uh, and makes money on the razor blades but it hasn't happened it's been interesting that that trend has sort of stopped and actually reversed to some extent so it'll be interesting to watch if that trend continues over time obviously there are lower end Kindles that are still are lower priced um, especially if you're willing to accept ads but uh, interesting to see them really investing at the high end there. Yeah, I do think the power user space makes sense. I, I think one of the best things about the Kindle, for example, is that you're not bombarded by notifications as you read on it. Right. Um, I, it, it because it's a single-purpose device, I think it enhances focus. It makes it easier to read, distraction-free. And uh, and so I, I, I still think there's room in the market for an e-reader. I do, I do think the form factor is going to stick, but I think prices will come down. Right, right. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, so the second news topic was um, this this fairly well known, slightly mysterious 
uh, Apple analyst. I'm trying to remember the name off the top of my head. I think it's Ming-Chi Kuo. Um, and I think KGI is the name of the firm. Um, came out with an Apple Watch forecast for 2016, which I think calls for a roughly 25% drop in total shipments in 2016 compared with 2015. And the reasoning is twofold. One is, you know, last year it launched for the first time. So there was that huge kind of upfront sales cycle, which you don't have this time around in the first three quarters of the year. And the second assumption is that there's a new watch sometime towards the end of the year, perhaps September, October timeframe, and that it's not a very significant advance and therefore doesn't really drive a whole bunch of new sales compared to uh, the, the previous year. And so the, the net effect of all of this is that we actually see a sales drop year on year. Um, I thought it was interesting. I mean, that is a big assumption to make that there's no big advancement. And I think, you know, if I think about how I use my Apple Watch, I use, you know, the the complications on the watch face, I use the notifications and I use um, the fitness tracking, um, which I didn't think I would, but it's, it's useful to me and I do use that. I don't use apps the vast majority of the time. I don't use apps. I don't use the glances. Um, but I use those other things. And, and the reason why I don't use the apps is they're just too slow. And part of that is it doesn't have independent connectivity that's useful most of the time, and it doesn't have a powerful enough processor, I think, to, to run those apps. And so even if the form factor didn't change at all, but if the performance were bumped up significantly and if it got some kind of independent connectivity, even if that was just more pervasive Wi-Fi connectivity when you're, say, at home or whatever, that could be a significant bump that I think could could really improve the experience around apps. Um, but assuming that it doesn't get those things is a really big assumption to make. And there are other things that may come, like smart bands and things like that, which would uh, augment the functionality somewhat but not make a dramatic difference. And, you know, over a year and a half into this device now, uh, when when the new one will launch, it'll be about a year and a half rather. Um, and so I think it has to get a fairly significant spec bump to make it worthwhile at that point. And so I would be surprised if it doesn't get a fairly significant upgrade. And as such, I'm a bit skeptical about these forecast numbers from KGI. What was your take, Aaron? Well, I, I agree. I, I mean, the thing about KGI is it's hard to bet against them because they're they're right frequently enough that you can't just dismiss everything that they say. But I agree with you on the on the speed issue. I, I think I think and the connectivity issue. I mean, I don't think it's ever wise to bet against Apple's silicon and processor design teams. I, I think you're crazy to actually because they have been able to do things that that are pretty amazing and in a relatively short time frame. And the truth is this won't even be that short of a time frame. I think the next version of the S processor that will go into the watch is going to be much, much faster, like the difference between the original iPad and, and the and uh, the next generation iPad faster. And I think once that happens, you're going to see glances at, at, at least become more much more useful for people. And, and I think the same is likely for apps. I think that the other big problem, obviously, that apps have is just the screen real estate. And I don't think developers have been excited to experiment with that as long as their apps perform slowly on the watch. And so we may see new things there as well. I also think there's a lot more upside to bands than um, most people are recognizing. And, and my eyes were open to that this week with a piece by Seeking Alpha, um, where... Uh, he put he put out um, uh, a really great piece about how bands are a potentially really strong market because they add a whole bunch of extra sales on top of the sale of a watch. It, that most people that are buying watches tend to buy more than one band from Apple, and then once and and I think when smart bands do come out, um, a lot of people will be purchasing those as well. And so I think 
I think by by just paying attention only to the sale of Apple Watch units, you ignore the additional revenue that comes in from bands. And this is an area where Apple doesn't even necessarily have to innovate. They just have to come out with new colors and they can already generate sales. And so um, I, I think there's a lot more upside still to the watch. And I think it's primarily going to be in the speed, even if the form factor doesn't change at all. But I also think bands are going to be a space where Apple can make some decent revenue. Right. And I think, was it, is it that piece on Seeking Alpha, was that by Neil Seibart? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the bands are really interesting. I, I've recently bought another band for, for mine. It's a sport band in a different color. I was I the, wore the black one when I was doing exercise and things like that, but I found that I regularly kept it on in between exercise as well because it was too much hassle to change out, and I just found it a bit boring, so I bought a different color and could easily see myself buying another color. But I think, you know, smart bands, to the extent that these bands can do more than just uh, look nice, um, you know, that, that really obviously could potentially increase the opportunity as well. Um, let's move on to our third sort of news roundup topic, um, which is just the iPad Pro. Obviously, the 9.7-inch device started shipping just a short while ago. The 12-inch the uh, device has been around for a bit longer than that. Aaron, I know that you've had one for, for work for the last little bit. I've also had uh, both models uh, at home and at work for the last uh, week or so that I've been trying out. So um, what's, what's stood out to you as you started using the, the – it's the smaller one, right, that you have? Right, I have the 9.7-inch one, and I've, I've fallen in love with it pretty quickly, which, to be honest, was a bit of a surprise because I was upgrading from an iPad mini, and I really loved having the small mini, and I was worried that the that the middle size would be too big for the things I do. Um, but I ended up really just being drawn to it. I, I, you know, it's, it's pretty thin and light, which says a lot. Um, I think the other thing I've really enjoyed is getting to use the pencil, um, you know, when I teach, uh, there's a feature I've kind of stayed away from, and that's being able to annotate slides as you teach. Like uh, the feature that Keynote offers is you run through a presentation on your iPad. And the reason I've stayed away from it is because um, I definitely don't feel comfortable drawing with my finger to, to for example, write up a, 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 you know, a problem, for example, on my iPad uh, for the students to follow along with. The pencil with its palm rejection um, and touch rejection and, and with and its response rate just feels like I'm writing on paper. And so I feel like I can do that with much more confidence. So actually, once once our, you know, this semester wraps up and we head into the spring and summer, my plan is to, to revamp uh, my courses so I have more opportunities to be annotating slides as we go, which I think creates a much better learning experience. So I'm excited for that. And it's it's funny how, you know, I've had, for example, a, a Wacom bamboo stylus and um, the difference between that and the pencil just because of the tech refinements that make the pencil work well. Um, those little things make a really big difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've made a deliberate effort over the last week or so to only work on uh, one or other of these two iPad Pro devices. Um, and I've been able to do essentially everything with just a couple of exceptions. Um, one is recording and then editing this podcast um, last week. And, and again, today I'm using a MacBook Air to, to record, which is a device I always use. Um, the iPad Pro is perfectly capable of recording audio. There are some complications if you want to do Skype at the same time, which we do. 
um, but I could always use a different device. My challenge has just been I haven't tried it enough and, and sort of optimized the settings enough to be confident that it will get the, the audio quality that I'm looking for. Um, the other challenge is just that for editing purposes, you can't pull in a second stream into GarageBand. So GarageBand on the iPad is seems designed primarily as a, as a way to capture new audio rather than to edit existing audio. There's no easy way to bring in a second audio file, especially a really large one, and especially if it's coming from Google Drive, which is how we tend to share these files. So there's things like that that don't work well. The other thing that I've struggled with, and I mentioned this on Twitter, is... I work in the iWork apps um, for things like spreadsheets and presentations, but I also use Dropbox for syncing. And those two together is not a great fit for an iOS device. So the Dropbox app exists on iOS. Uh, iCloud exists obviously on iOS and and the iWork apps are there. Uh, And yet it's very hard to uh, edit a document from Dropbox and just have it stay in Dropbox and automatically update and sync. You have to basically pull it out of Dropbox and into the iWork app And then when you're done, you'd have to basically export it back into Dropbox, which means you then either have to overwrite the existing copy and hopefully didn't lose anything or create a second version, which is kind of frustrating. So there's problems with that workflow. And, and, you know, I I kind of mentioned this on Twitter and people said, oh, the easy solution is to stop using iWork and start using Office 365 instead. Um, I do have that installed on on these iPads as well. It works perfectly well if you're happy to use Office. I I find it really cumbersome now to go back to Office again having used the iWork apps. Uh, the other solution would be to use iCloud and iCloud Drive, um, but I just don't quite trust it well enough. I've had too many syncing issues with iCloud. So that's the one element of my workflow that I haven't been able to make work properly, where I've had to, I've, I've pulled things out of Dropbox and edited them in iWork and sent them back again. But as I say, that's an awkward thing to do. It's certainly not something I'd want to do over time. Um, but the vast majority of everything else that I've wanted to do, I, I've been able to do. And, and the fact that it's more portable has allowed me to do things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do with, an, with a, a MacBook, for example. So yesterday I was trying to watch the first half of the Facebook F8 keynote, and uh, but also was going to go play soccer. And so I just took the iPad Pro with me in the car, had it playing while it was on the seat next to me because it has cellular connectivity. You could do that even as I was driving. I was just listening to the audio while I was driving. When I got to my destination, I pulled out the video and watched that for a while until I was ready for my soccer game to start. You know, just that portability helps. But earlier in the day, I'd also been doing a split screen where I had the F8 keynote in a Safari tab. And then I had Evernote right next to it when taking notes on it and, and switching back and forth between Evernote and TweetBot and uh, my email app and things like that as I was going along. And there was brief skips in the video whenever I'd switch apps on the right side of the screen. But other than that, worked perfectly fine. Um, you know, and, and so I'm finding that almost everything I do, I can do really very well, especially on the larger of the two iPad Pros. The smaller one, the split screen multitasking is slightly less effective for certain things. Uh, definitely do value that the bigger screen real estate the keyboard is fantastic on both devices i've very quickly got to the point where i can type pretty much as fast as i can on on either my mac pro keyboard or on the macbook air keyboard um i haven't used the pencil much um we my kids and i have used it for some fun stuff um and i did take some notes for a personal thing uh, just to see how that worked and i really enjoyed it I've also had the Surface Pro in the house for the last week just to kind of compare that. And I found the stylus is a lot less pleasant to use on that. So that was an interesting insight too. Um, I imagine we could go on and on about this. Any any kind of last (laughs) thoughts about the iPad Pro before we move on? No, my big test. So I'm headed with a group of students to Ghana, Africa in a couple of weeks. And that's my next big test is bringing just my iPad Pro and not my laptop this time around, which Mm. will be the first trip where I will have attempted that. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that, that would be an interesting one. Um, I've, I've tried short trips with just an iPad before, and it's mostly worked out, and I think it would certainly be better with the iPad Pro, but I am nervous about the prospect of leaving a MacBook behind for a longer trip, so see how that goes when the time comes. All right, well, let's move on to the question of the week. Um, this week's question is about corporate venture capital, and this is a, a subject where Aaron has a, a personal connection to, to the research in this area. His brother-in-law and quite a number of others, obviously, have, have worked on this topic for some time. So Aaron's been doing some research this week. Our question is, what is corporate venture capital, um, and is it worth doing? In other words, is it is it worth large companies investing in their own venture capital efforts rather than just allowing the, the VC uh, industry to kind of take care of this and then making uh, investments and acquisitions on a more ad hoc basis? Um, and so... Let's start out by just asking kind of what's the state of corporate venture capital? Kind of where are we with all of this right now? Kind of what's going on? Sure. Well, so corporate venture capital, which I'm going to start referring to as CVC for short because it's a long phrase to have to repeat a hundred times. Um, CVC t- tends to go in waves. Um, there, we're thus far at the highest point of what's generally considered the fourth wave. Of, of venture capital from corporations. The first was in the 60s and early 70s, then again in the late 80s, late 90s, and now in the, you know, in the 2000s, we've had this fourth resurgence of corporate venture capital. And we are at the highest point probably ever historically of CVC. In fact, in 2014, which is the last time an annual like uh, data set was collected, uh, corporations invested about $12 billion through venture capital investments. In fact, that year they participated in one of every five venture capital deals, which is a pretty massive undertaking because there's a, there's over 4,000 VC deals that happen that happen um, every year. Um, Google and Intel are the largest corporations and the most active as well when it comes to venture capital. Um, in fact, over an 18-month period, they both invested around $5 billion, which is quite a bit. Um, and Google was the most active of any corporation when it came to venture capital with over 400 investments, um, which, which obviously is a huge chunk of, of, VC, of corporate venture capital deals. Um, as a general rule, though, um, corporate venture capital tends to be... Uh, later and slower than traditional venture capital. And so CVC is, is much more a trend-following um, kind of investment resource than a trend-setting one. Okay, so given that we tend to think of VC funding coming fairly early in a company's history, it's kind of opportunity to get in early with, say, a new trend or a new technology. Is, is this worth doing at all if it's kind of chronically late, as it were? Well, there's some financial benefit if it's done right, obviously. But again, investing isn't the core function of the companies that are doing this. And so the main purpose they would do it is strategic, not financial. And that's that holds true. In fact, a recent poll of American CVC managers indicated that they do it, that over 65% of them do it primarily for strategic reasons. In fact, 15% do it exclusively for strategic reasons, which you might interpret to mean that they're taking losses on those investments because there's strategic value in the investments being made. Historically, the main idea, the main strategic value uh, for for doing uh, uh, venture capital for a corporation is to provide a window for better acquisitions. Large companies tend to grow through acquiring smaller companies. And uh, the idea is that if you can invest early, then you can invest in multiple targets, watch them, cultivate them, and then pick the winners to become 
your new acquisitions. Um, the, the interesting thing is, although this has been sort of the longstanding and primary strategic reason for venture capital by corporations, it, the, the, the troubling thing is that this strategy actually tends to backfire. And this was a paper actually put out by David Benson, um, who, like you mentioned, is my brother-in-law, but he also teaches here in the Marriott School of Management with me. Um, the problem is, is that when you invest in a uh, when you invest in in, in a company, uh, in a startup, um, there's research in behavioral economics and in behavioral finance that predicts uh, what's called an escalation of commitment which means you have a tendency to overinvest because you have already put a lot into it. And so you tend to forget your sunk costs. And, uh, and you start to essentially, like one interview, interviewee put it, you start to see it as your baby. What happens is when the acquisition time rolls around, one of two things happen, or sometimes both. Um, the acquiring company that, that put out the original investment uh, will either spend too much in acquiring the company that they've already invested in, or secondly, they'll they'll acquire a company that they shouldn't be acquiring, and it's a way to, for the managers to essentially cover up a what might have otherwise turned out to well what was a bad investment and now becomes a bad acquisition, and so, so this main purpose of this main strategic purpose of, of venture capital for corporations is. Uh, actually not all that compelling when you look at the results of research. And, and in fact, it's interesting, in the, in the most recent uh, couple of years, firms are starting to do this less less and less often. And, um, and it's largely because CVC is increasingly happening in dedicated, is happening in dedicated units like Google Ventures is, where it's a separate business unit doing its thing. Um, rather than um, sort of happening on an ad hoc basis through an existing finance department. And so as you separate out the VC activity it, uh, into, into uh, separate entities, you, you get a, uh, a lower likelihood of the escalation of commitment problem. So then the, that kind of raises the question, if, if that's you know, strategically one of the big reasons for doing this corporate VC and, and it doesn't seem to be working all that well, you know, what, what other reasons are there for doing this or is it just a bad idea? It's still not a bad idea, um, but corporations that do this need to think about it differently um, because the, the, probably the main strategic value in doing uh, CVC is that it can enhance the company's internal research and development. Um, which doesn't seem like it's immediately connected, but uh, R&D is, you know, the lifeblood of corporate growth. And uh, there are some really positive things that happen if you d- properly do CVC to go along with your research and development. So one, for example, is you get access to emerging tech and business models, access that you wouldn't have otherwise without being an investor. Um, this access and, and additional information can guide your your own personal research, and so this this helps you head in the right direction. In fact, there's a there's an interesting side benefit from doing CVC, which is that you can identify dry holes without having to undertake the full effort. You know, very rarely do corporations that are doing this level of investing, very rarely are they the sole investor. They're usually a group of investors, and so there are multiple parties sharing the risk. <clears throat> well, if your investment doesn't work out, then you've figured out that the underlying tech or underlying business model is not a fruitful one without having to make the investment necessary to discover that. 
And so it, it, it enhances your R&D because it helps your R&D department identify dead ends without having to undertake the same work that the startup had to go through to figure that out. And so in this sense, it actually can be kind of a substitute for market research more generally. Um, in fact, one of the upsides of CVC is that it brings entrepreneurs and, and large corporation executives together. Large firm execs and startup execs tend to move in different circles, socially speaking. At least that's what the research tends to show. And this is a way for them to connect with each other where the, the large company shows up and makes an investment in the startup firm. And so you get access to a lot of new knowledge and wisdom that is accessible to the startup companies, but not accessible to the large companies doing the investments. And so without these investments, these, these personal connections tend to happen less frequently. And then all of this eventually can lead to improved acquisitions. Um, and there are early indications of this being true, but in an unexpected way. The idea is that if, if a corporation does venture capital investments in, in startup A, startup B, and startup C, the idea isn't that the corporation will be able to pick one of those three you know, as the more likely winner, but instead it will improve that corporation's acquisitions in startup D, startup E, startup F, and so on. The idea is that there's an expertise that you gain from doing CVC that can lead to better acquisitions of alternative companies that you have not invested in. Um, now, all this said about the way it improves your research and development, you can't actually outsource too much of your R&D out to venture capital. Um, in fact, the research shows that there's a, an inflection point. This is David's research. It shows that there's actually an inflection point that seems to be around 12 to 15 percent of a ratio of CVC to, to R&D expenditures. So, so if you imagine all of your R&D and your CVC expenditures as, as you know, um, 100 units, you probably shouldn't be spending more than 15 of those units on CVC, um, only because there's a point at which if you rely too much on corporate venture capital, you don't really have the internal R&D chops to take advantage of the lessons that you're learning. And so it appears that really you, you should be doing corporate venture capital if you want to sort of goose the efforts of your research and development department, but you don't want to replace your R&D with venture capital investments. Right. Okay. So here's a quick question that we, we didn't discuss ahead of time, but I'm wondering if you can address quickly for us, which is, I know there's been some debate, especially I'm thinking of Google and Google Ventures specifically, um, about Chinese walls kind of between the rest of the business and the investment. And you kind of talked about making it a separate unit kind of helps in terms of avoiding the problem of over-investing in things you shouldn't invest in. Um, but I'm wondering if kind of the whole R&D benefit is, is diluted if um, you do have that kind of Chinese wall between the rest of the business and the venture business. It is a little bit. Um, part of the reason Google and other companies are inclined to do this is because they might have a hard time getting... The, the investment target companies to trust them. Right. And so when you set up these barriers, it it, 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 it makes them feel more like a dedicated VC that's not going to swoop in and steal the business model or the technology, which has happened historically, and, and that's why uh, startup executives are always so skittish about it. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, think, uh, I think the truth is on the... 
from what I've been able to observe and figure out, it seems like uh, if a startup is willing to take a venture capital investment part uh, from a corporation, part of the reason they're willing to do it is because they hope it will one day lead to acquisitions. Now, based on what the, where the research has pointed in terms of you know the the quality of acquisitions that come out of this, this may change. And I'm not sure companies would be excited about startups learning about how CVC acquisitions tend to not work out. <laughs> and so, right. so it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think the truth is there's a lot we still don't know with a lot of certainty because this has been a very much ebb and flow industry. And truth be told, a relatively is a relatively young investment industry. And so it's hard to know exactly where this will all pan out Right. Okay. in, in that regard. Uh-huh. Okay, so to go back to kind of what you were saying before um, about you know, benefiting from an R&D perspective and also what you were saying a little earlier about kind of the culture and mixing cultures between older and more established companies and, and younger, more disruptive companies. Does this help these larger companies? Does, does engaging in CVC help larger companies kind of avoid disruption or better respond to potential disruptors? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the answer is probably not. The first reason is because of what we just talked about with entrepreneurs having a hard time trusting mm-hmm. overlapping companies as investors. I, I mean, there's, you know, the, the startups definitely feel like they are by nature disruptive. In fact, their goal is to be disruptive because otherwise they can't enter those markets without reshaping them. And uh, it's a natural resistance then to not take venture capital or any investment money from your competitor, and so that's one of the that's one of the big barriers to to you know companies sort of using this as a shield against disruption. But the other is the differences culturally between large established companies and startups. Um, you know, this disruption mindset can actually be hampered by taking CVC money. Um, anecdotally, my uh, David told me a story about, or sh- sorry, shared a story with me about uh, YouTube. In the early days, they were considering taking some, uh, we'll call it old media money. They didn't say who it was, but but part of the hang-up for this old media company that wanted to do the investment was they wanted YouTube to be much more aggressive in protecting copyrighted material. And, and in fact, what they wanted YouTube to do was to... Uh, to essentially pre-screen all videos that are posted to make sure that they weren't violating somebody's copyright. Uh, it, you can imagine the administrative headache that that would have been and how, how seriously that would have hampered YouTube's growth as a, as a video platform, a video sharing platform. And so YouTube turned down the money and they uh, decided instead to adopt the the reporting mechanism, right, the takedown approach rather than the screening approach. And... Uh, in terms of protecting copyrighted material, and it obviously, you know, led to YouTube's crazy growth. And so, um, you know, that that internal cultural struggle, because, you know, when you get VC money from a company, they're going to be very interested and engaged in management. They're probably going to be sharing management resources, but along with it, invariably will come the culture. And so disruptors and traditional large companies are not going to always see eye to eye in a CVC arrangement. And so it's hard. So the indicators are that, no, this is not actually a great protection against disruption. Um, You really are probably going to have to do that primarily with your own internal R&D. 
Okay, and so um, I guess the ultimate question is just whether CVC is as effective as regular VC money. Um, we've talked about a lot of the drawbacks and um, some of the challenges, some of the false assumptions that people make about it, but kind of what's your verdict ultimately at the end of all this? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say with any certainty. I mean, certainly Google Ventures and Intel Capital have had some pretty fantastic investments and large exits, but, um, but you know, they are two out of hundreds globally that are doing this. And so it's hard to say, but, but there are two things that indicate that CVC money may not be as effective as regular VC money. Um, one, there's, this is actually often called dumb money. Um, and it's called dumb money because CVC money tends to come in late, meaning they're not there at the early stages, like we already mentioned. Um, but then the other problem is it also tends to not stay for very long. When there's an economic downturn, for example, and the core business is suffering, uh, this is one of the first things to get scaled back. And so it doesn't stay in for the long haul. Um, and another problem is if a CEO change occurs and the CEO, new CEO doesn't quite catch the vision of corporate venture capital, then those then it gets cut in that regard as well. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen with with something like Google Ventures, where it's an established business unit. Um, but like we already talked about, a lot of companies kind of do this on an ad hoc basis, and that can be in a surprising way personality driven. And so. Uh, you can understand why this isn't always going to lead to the most efficient or, or productive investments. The, the second reason it's probably not in the long term as effective as a talent one. It's hard to, it turns out it's hard to hold on to good talent in corporate venture capital. And it's because the, the CVC activities or managers are typically not promised carried interest um, because there are conflict of interest problems that arise from that with the company that's doing the investing. And so what happens is the upside is a lot higher for, for, um, for the really successful fund managers, the ones who can sniff out the best deals and make those you know, sort of rock star investments. And so if you get your start in CVC and you're really good at it, um, the, you're not likely to stay. And CVC, and you'll probably move to you'll probably move to traditional VC, um, where you have a much higher upside. And so, if you can't keep your talent, and and generally companies aren't staying committed to this, it's hard to imagine how this money could be invested as well on average as traditional venture capitalists. So, um, you know, the, like I said, is just kind of a closing observation. The the truth is, there's a lot about um, this industry that is still being discovered. Um, especially in the details. It's helpful now that more and more companies are doing this because the data sets are becoming larger and more reliable for research. And so it's, it's a pretty exciting area of publication in uh, business academics, in fact. But right. uh, yeah. that means there are a lot more lessons to learn as well. Sure. Good stuff. Uh, if people want to read more about this, uh, there are places that we could point them to. We could include links on the website, for example. Uh, yeah, we'll have some links to some papers and other websites that give a rundown. I interestingly enough, and this isn't always true for Wikipedia, but Wikipedia has a pretty great and thorough entry on corporate venture capital, which is a great place to start. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Well, we will post those on the website uh, along with links to other stuff that we'll talk about today. So thank you, Aaron. Um, so our third topic is Facebook's F8 developer conference that took place this week. Um, the first day keynote on Tuesday uh, had a lot of the biggest and highest profile announcement. There was another keynote on Wednesday, which was partly deeper dive on some things and had some more specifics around some of the, the network technology stuff that Facebook's doing. We're going to focus largely on the first day stuff. 
Um, one of the most notable things was the way that the keynote started, and we won't talk about this in detail, but there was this sort of grand vision of the world. There were some veiled references to Donald Trump um, and uh, perhaps some other uh, people in other regimes around the world as well, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg kind of lining, outlining a sort of personal vision for the way the world should work and, and the right direction for the world to go in. But he used that as a, an introduction to Facebook's 10-year plan and basically a 10-year roadmap for Facebook's products. And the overarching theme there was that Facebook, uh, the core Facebook experience has been a platform for almost 10 years now. Uh, I think next year will be the 10th anniversary. Um, and yet there are all these other products that are pretty substantial in size now at Facebook that have not yet become platforms. And, and Messenger is one of those, WhatsApp's one of those, Instagram's one of those, video is one of those. Um, you know, there are all these other products that haven't become platforms, in other words, haven't been opened up in the same way to developers. And that began to change at this event with Messenger. And part of Facebook's five-year plan is, is to have that change for a bunch of these other products as well. Um, and that presumably will happen and be announced at these future F8 events. Um, one of the big things around uh, Messenger this time around was bots, chat bots, and web chat functionality through Facebook Messenger, through which... Uh, individuals can communicate with companies and brands through Messenger, something that's been rumored for quite a while, but that was finally announced and then opened up yesterday. Um, there was also some stuff around live video and 360-degree video and the open sourcing of some of the technology that Facebook's developed around capturing 360-degree video and a, a camera rig that, that Facebook's built itself and will be uh, opening up all the plans and technology behind that as well. Um, so there's quite a lot to take in overall. Um, Aaron, what was what stood out to you from all of this? Well, I was actually interested in your experience with the bots. I, I haven't actually tried them yet because I don't use Facebook Messenger all that much. But um, The Verge had an article essentially complaining that this is one of the slowest ways to use the Internet. And I know from Twitter that you tried out bots a little bit. Mm -hmm. What were your impressions of, of, yeah. of them? Yeah, so I, I've actually I've written my, my weekly Tech Opinions column uh, on Thursday will be about the bots in general, but with the Facebook experience as kind of a core of, of what I talk about. But, um, you know, there were a number of things that were demoed on stage. Um, there was this weird weather cat bot uh, called Poncho that was supposed to deliver you the weather and the location you're in. I tried it, a bunch of other people tried it, and for most people it seemed to not be able to recognize whatever location they specified and just kept asking them over and over and over again, where are you, where are you? <laughs> which location do you want so it really wasn't working very well and given this is the only kind of facebook bot that's out there so far that was not a great first experience um there's cnn wall street journal have bots as well that will deliver you news articles um what i noticed with a lot of these bots is they basically seem to opt you into receiving breaking news updates and things like that and regular messages from them even though there's no kind of dialogue to ask you if you want to do that they just kind of assume that one interaction with them means that the floodgates are open. And so that's one real big downside that they don't seem to have thought through. Um, if you text stop to the CNN bot, it sends you articles with stop in the headline. Um, so that doesn't solve the problem. And it turns out unsubscribe does work, but you have to kind of poke around for a while to figure that one out. Um, you can just block it as if you were blocking a contact that you didn't want to hear from anymore, but that seems unnecessarily heavy-handed. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't feel quite right. I mean, kudos to Facebook for announcing this thing and immediately having a bunch of examples that people could actually use. But my experience in the, using the news ones was that they were overbearing uh, and assumed that you wanted to opt into receiving lots of notifications, which is now invading quite a personal space. You know, your messenger experience is where you have personal conversations and suddenly now 
you've got CNN butting in there from time to time and, and popping up system level notifications on your phone about it, um, which I found quite frustrating. So there's definitely some thinking still to be done about how this stuff works best. Uh, as I say, Facebook's own one that is out there is, is not great, to be honest. Uh, so there's a lot of work still to be done. And, and uh, more generally, the piece that I wrote for Tech Pinions that, that you should be able to read by the time this is up um, is just about the fact that bots are only really appropriate for a fairly narrow set of interactions. They have to be very simple. They have to be quick. They have to be able to leverage whatever context is available. And basically, they have to be for things that you haven't already made an investment in, say, an app or a website to do, because that will be where you will naturally go if you've done that before. And so uh, that really narrows the, the set of things for which you might want to use a bot. Um, so I think you know it's clear why Facebook and Microsoft are bought into this vision. Uh, they missed out on mobile operating systems and the App Store model, and this is kind of their their chance to try to replace that. But you know I, I'm a lot more skeptical about the potential here than they are. Yeah, I um, I, I am too for all the reasons that you said. I mean, I haven't tried them yet, but uh, my wife had an interesting experience with a telemarketing call the other day that was purely uh, automated. But the reason she stayed on the line, because she was fascinated by how realistic it sounded. Hmm. And so I think we are at the beginning, like the, we are at the beginning of these actually being a viable way to interact, to get things done. Um, but it will still obviously take quite a bit of time because you're talking about some pretty amazing machine learning that can make these work well. I mean, we're really, I, I mean, dictation is still not working 100% right. You know, when you talk to Siri to make things happen, the interactions there are still questionable, and that's true for all those sort of personal assistant platforms. And I think, uh, so So I, I think I think we're heading in that direction, but the, the massive amount of technological learning that needs to take place, I think, is still very much in front of us. Yeah. Um, so another big theme was live video, and, and Facebook's now opened up a live API where, for example, a drone could broadcast so you don't have to be a, a smartphone or a tablet or a, a PC to be able to participate in live video. Now you, you could have some kind of third-party device that doesn't technically run a Facebook app of any kind or have a web browser that could still uh, broadcast live video. So this potentially opens up new opportunities, and I think this is probably largely geared towards professional audiences, frankly. So um, you know, if you wanted to run a, a live broadcast that had professional characteristics, you probably wouldn't want to use your iPad or whatever. You'd want to use professional cameras and so on and then feed it through the API into Facebook. And so, um, or even a multi-camera type view uh, might well be what you'd want to do for a, for a sort of more professional broadcast. So that's interesting sort of evolution, but it just feeds my sense that a lot of what live video is going to be is going to be the same old stuff that we're used to with live video. So broadcast quality featuring celebrities or other professionals rather than necessarily unleashing this sort of explosion of uh, amateur live video which you know has been the vision for things like periscope and has not really panned out except for the handful of occasions where there are amateurs in places where there's breaking news and professionals haven't got there yet and i think approaching the technological hurdle of live video is an interesting idea but I, I tend to agree with you that the problem doesn't seem to be technological so much as it is um, so much as it is just what drives the interesting content in this regard. Right. And I'm just not sure that that uh, I mean I mean certainly like like breaking news events. I think that's where there's a really strong future for for amateur live video. But uh, um, and maybe in that sense you can see how. You know, having something that you could just immediately turn on and immediately be be broadcasting will be helpful. But 
the truth is most people are already using devices that have the apps necessary to broadcast live video in those situations. So I'm not sure the technological hurdle is going to energize this all that much. Right, yeah. Um, Some of the other interesting stuff was around 360 video. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, Facebook introduced this 360-degree camera that they developed. It's it's going to be $30,000. So again, this is for the professionals and not just for kind of hobbyist 360-degree video creators. They thought about some really thorny issues about how you capture 360-degree video um, in a way that's sort of seamless, where you don't capture the pole or whatever that's hang- holding up the camera. Um, so they've done some clever thinking, and they're opening up all the thinking and the technology behind that, which means that others could potentially build similar things. So that's another interesting thing. Probably not going to make a huge difference, but an example of a lot of things that were showcased at F8 where Facebook's thinking through really thorny technology problems. And another example of that was some of the network technologies that they're working on um, where they have um, these uh, this drone um, with a wingspan. was basically just a pair of wings with some fuel cells and some solar panels and uh, some network connectivity built into it. Uh, for, for distributing internet connectivity to remote areas, but they're also doing things in, in urban areas and doing some trials, I think, in California later this year uh, with some potential sort of fiber replacement type stuff. So really thinking through some of these interesting thorny technological problems, and especially the ones that pose barriers for connectivity, which ultimately you know, is what Facebook's trying to overcome, is getting the world connected. And that was a big theme at F8 this year, it felt like. And I think that's where things are really interesting for Facebook's future, because in this sense, they feel like Google and that they're primarily an advertising company. I mean, that's that's where they make their money is selling ads. And now they're trying to move into sort of the the, the grittier, you know, like physical tech as a revenue source. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how well they can pull off that transition. Just it, 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 almost in the exact same place that Google is with some of their hardware efforts. Yeah, no, it's interesting because both of them obviously pursuing the connectivity stuff largely as a means to an end, right? So expanding the addressable market. I mean, Zuckerberg talks in terms of, you know, altruism and philanthropy and so on. But, you know, from a Facebook perspective, this stuff is very much about increasing the addressable market for Facebook. It's the same for Google, ultimately. Yeah, but the question is, can you do that well if up to this point you've been really good at selling advertising? Right, right. It's definitely a new skill set for both companies, for sure. Anything else that um, you wanted to talk about with regard to F8 and the announcements made there? You know, if there's a theme that comes out of it, and this was explicit, this isn't a hidden theme that I spotted, but it's it really is clear that Facebook as a platform um, is extending in all kinds of new areas. And it, it's gotten me thinking about, you know, these big sort of billion dollar, or sorry, billion user platforms that are out there. And I wonder if you can even be a billion user company without actually being a platform. You know, can you can you grow to that size without having the connections with third party developers, third party products? You know, can you can you get a billion users just having your own products without any outside connections pulling more people in? It's an interesting question, and and at this point, it doesn't seem like it's possible. In fact, if you look at the way they're extending Messenger right now, because they haven't been able to get enough people using it, as at least not as many as they would like, well, their instinct is okay. Well, let's get let's get it to be more of a platform rather than you know just a a, a sort of isolated service. Yeah, at some point you hope there's this kind of virtuous circle there because the irony is that Facebook said it won't try to monetize some of these things until they get to a certain scale. And so I think Facebook Messenger's got to 900 million now. So 
um, you know, they feel like they're ready to start monetizing it and doing some of the stuff with creating a platform. WhatsApp's already there, you know, up in those very high numbers, and uh, they haven't announced that either monetizing that or turning it into a platform. But presumably soon they'll turn on the spigot there too. And so the idea being that there's this virtuous circle where you create a platform that creates more value around it, you then grow the user base further, that then makes it more attractive to developers who create more functionality around it, makes it more attractive for users and so on and so forth. And so that's, you know, that that five-year part of the roadmap is about turning the rest of these products that are getting up there in terms of hundreds of millions of users into platforms and kind of creating that additional value around them. So it's interesting to see how they're doing that, that they're being very explicit and upfront about that, even though they're not ready to announce all the details behind it just yet. Yeah, well, and I would even add, you know, the 900 million users for Facebook Messenger is, in my opinion, a grossly inflated reflection of actual usage. I mean, you, you get you get pushed into Facebook Messenger constantly by the primary Facebook app. And, uh, you know, technically you count as a user, but the, the tricky thing about messaging and, you know, especially, you know, your great analysis that we've talked about before about messaging as a platform, I think the trickiest thing about messaging is people are not going to use that many different messaging products as time goes on. I think you're going to see, especially as the platform wars pick up on the messaging side, I think you're going to see a tiny handful of winners just because it's it's kind of annoying to have to maintain different contact lists and, and different, uh, you know, different discussion platforms, different messaging platforms. And so, I, I, you know, Microsoft is smart to tune into this. And I think hopefully with their approach with bots is agnostic enough that whoever wins, Microsoft has a, you know, has a strong foothold in helping developers take advantage of this space. Yeah, and this is another thing I talked about in my Tech Opinions piece is that you know this works best in cultures where messaging is the dominant medium for communication rather than, say, email or phone or some other thing. Um, and that's true in Asia, for sure, and it's true in certain other parts of the world. I'm not sure it's as true in the US, and it only really works in the messaging platform that you use the most because you're dipping in and out of it all day long anyway, and so it feels like a natural place to extend that communication beyond individuals and towards businesses and companies and that's the biggest challenge that i see here for for facebook and others in the u.s is you know are people really invested in messaging to this extent is messenger where they want to have those conversations and you know the mind shift the cultural shift that's associated with moving from using apps for this stuff to using bots it's a pretty big one um and, and it's not great for all interactions there's a certain subset of interactions that it works for so i'm curious to see kind of how that develops over time as well All right, well, let's wrap up and uh, we'll finish off with our weekly pick. As always, this week, it's my turn. Uh, I'm just got a very simple recommendation. If you haven't used it yet, I recommend the uh, Microsoft Outlook app for iOS and Android. Um, It's been my default um, email app on iOS and what I'm using Android on Android phones as well, uh, both on iOS and uh, on iPads and iPhones, excuse me, uh, for months now. Um, it's very good if you use Gmail or Gmail-based email. So I use Gmail for personal, and I have a Google Apps-based account for my work. Um, you know, I find that it works very well. There are very few things that don't seem to work well. It also nicely combines email and calendar and contacts in one single app, so you can very quickly switch tabs to see if you're available at the time somebody's proposing for a meeting and so on. Uh, works very well on the iPad, including the iPad Pro at both sizes, does split screen uh, very nicely, um, and so on and so forth. So, And the notifications and so on are good too. So if you, um, if you use Gmail or, or Google Apps, or even if you use Microsoft-based uh, Exchange email or whatever, 
Uh, the Outlook email app for, for iOS and Android is, is very good for that kind of thing, works very well on iOS and Android. Um, doesn't work well uh, or in, in anything like the same way, unfortunately, on the Mac. Uh, and so there, there is an Outlook client for Mac, but it's very much the traditional flavor of Outlook that's designed first and foremost to work with Exchange rather than uh, working with third-party clients. So I'm looking forward to when when they finally release some kind of upgraded version for the Mac as well. But the team there's done some really good work. They've acquired a couple of companies that have helped them to do that. Um, but uh, that's my my recommendation and my weekly pick for this week. Well, that's the end of this episode. We're thankful for you being with us this week. We hope you found it useful and interesting. We welcome your feedback, as always, either through the website or via Twitter. Uh, if you go to the website at, at uh, podcast.beyonddevices, uh, then you can see links to stuff that we've talked about today, including some of the links that Aaron mentioned. And uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you. <laughs>